Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You can find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
Well, when I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I'm a big boy. I'm a grown man. I can admit when I'm wrong. Last week, I introduced the book of Colossians. It was my intention to go through Colossians and Ephesians. And I said last week that looking at the archive on the GCA site, the last time I had been through those individual books, Colossians and Ephesians, was, uh, I think, 2007. And so it seemed like a good time to go back and review those books because they are so fundamental to what we believe. And then I got home, and I just happened to take another look at the archive. There's a section of the archive called Ephesians and Colossians, dating back to two and a half years ago. And I thought, well, that's why this all feels like deja vu. It's only been two and a half years. I called Micah. Micah said that it was probably God's sovereign intention for me to miss that and not see that so that I would be guided into teaching it again. He called me, and I quote, a victim of sovereignty. <laughs> I called Tom. I told him the same thing. Tom's reaction is, yeah, it stinks getting old. <laughs> Two completely different reactions. But... I'm able to admit my error, and really, rather than repeating things that I said two and a half years ago, I decided to just start again. So let's say that last week was like a trial week. We got a chance to just dip our toe in the introduction of Colossians, and instead, this morning, we're going to start a new book. Actually, we're going to start two letters of Paul. We just finished the book of Galatians, arguably the first letter that Paul wrote, the first of his epistles that we actually still have. But some argue that his earliest letter was the first letter that he wrote to the Thessalonians. And so we are going to begin this morning a study of the Thessalonian books. I went back and checked the archive, and it's been 10 years. I feel confident in saying that. I scoured the archive <laughs> to make sure that I was being accurate this week. So for Jeff and for everybody else who's been waiting to hear me say it, uh, I was wrong. And... Uh, I, I don't like the fact that Jeff is gloating about that, but it'll probably help for you to take a look at the map in the back of your Bible, because this morning we're going to be talking about a lot of the different areas that Paul actually went to. Most of your Bibles have a map that's like the, the first missionary journeys of Paul, but you'll find the Aegean Sea and that's the best way to find like Ephesus and then across the sea from that you're going to find Greece. Now even up until this very day there is a city, the largest city, well second largest city in Greece that is Thessaloniki or known sometimes as Salonika. It has slightly over a million inhabitants in its metropolitan area, and it is the capital of the geographic region of Macedonia. Do you see Macedonia there on your map? Well, these names, like Macedonia, are very good biblical names. So let's talk about Macedonia itself, and then we'll start concentrating on Thessalonica. Modern Macedonia is considered to include six Balkan countries. It's all of northern Macedonia, large parts of Greece and Bulgaria, and then smaller parts of Albania and Serbia and Kosovo. It covers approximately 67,000 square kilometers and has a population of around 5 million people. 
So the history of that area, this very prominent area, the history of it is that from the middle of the 4th century B.C., the kingdom of Macedon became the dominant power there in the Balkan Peninsula. Macedonia itself was named after Philip of Macedon. You've heard me talk about him occasionally because he had a rather famous child, Alexander the Great, and his lesser-known brother, Steve the Adequate. <laughs> That's not true. Thessalonica was founded by King Cassander of Macedon. And he actually named it after his wife. That's where the name Thessalonica comes from. She was the daughter of Philip II of Macedon. So we're talking about 315 BC here, 20 years after the fall of the kingdom of Macedonia. Thessalonica was made the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. And so by the time Paul got there, this was a really important city. This is a thriving city. It has its own seaport, which means that there is a tremendous amount of trade going through the city. And by Jesus' time, it's a Roman province. In AD 41, Mark Antony, you might know that name of Cleopatra fame, Mark Antony gave the city the status of a free city of the Roman Republic, and it became the capital of all the Greek provinces in the Roman Empire. Under the kingdom of Macedonia, the city of Thessalonica retained its own autonomy, it had its own parliament, it even minted its own coins, and it became the most important city then in Macedonia. It was a major trade city, like I said. It was sitting on what was known as the Roman Road, or the Via Ignatia. It was a road that facilitated trade between Thessaloniki, its early name, and the great centers of commerce like Rome and Byzantium. So Thessaloniki also lies at the southern end of the main north-south route through the Balkans, thereby linking the Balkans to the whole rest of Greece. Okay, I recounted all of that to say, this is a city where a lot of people are traveling through. There's a lot of trade going on. It's a very important, very wealthy city. And so if Paul can get a foothold there, if he can plant a church there, then a tremendous amount of commerce and people and travelers going through that city are going to hear about Christ. And they're going to carry it back to wherever they came from. They're going to carry the gospel to other people groups. So it's strategically really wise that very early on, Paul went to Thessalonica. Now, he wasn't in Thessalonica for very long, because everywhere he went, as we saw in the book of Galatians, everywhere he went, he was withstood. And we're going to read about that. And in fact, if you have turned to the book of Thessalonians, keep your finger there and instead turn back to the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts is going to give us a tremendous amount of background here in order for us to understand Thessalonica and how it is that Paul ended up there. Paul did not visit Thessalonica on his first missionary journey. His first missionary journey included Galatia, the book we just finished. So we're talking about A.D. 49 or 50. Right around there, he began his second missionary journey. And Paul visited Lystra, and that's where he met Timothy. Now, when we begin the book of Thessalonians, you're going to see three prominent names. Silas, who's called Silvanus, and you're going to see Timothy, and you're going to see Paul. So in the book of Acts, we learn a little bit about how it is that he came across these people. All right, so let's start reading then in Acts 15. This is the beginning of the account of Paul's second missionary journey, starting at verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren 
in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord. So his second missionary journey began with the intention of going back and visiting the churches he had planted the first time out. But God had other plans. Let's go see how they are. Verse 37, Barnabas was desirous of taking John, who was called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him, and he sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So Paul and Barnabas have separated. Paul needs to take somebody along with him, and he chooses Silas. This particular section of the book of Acts gives me a tremendous amount of confidence. I'm really glad to read that even Paul and Barnabas had moments where they just couldn't get along. They disagreed over taking John Mark with them because previously John Mark had abandoned them and gone back home. Fortunately, later you're going to see Paul actually write Send Mark to me, because he's a help to me when he's in prison. So Paul does forgive John Mark, but at this moment, he's upset with the young man for abandoning the work, and since Barnabas wants to take him along, Paul and Barnabas have this sharp disagreement and separate from one another. Now, it would be real easy to say, well, that's just human flesh arguing with each other. But actually, providentially, what God did was he took two of the strongest preachers of his gracious gospel who were on the planet at that moment and kind of sent them two different ways. Otherwise, they would have gladly stayed together. And so Paul chose Silas and departed, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Chapter 16. And he came also through Derbe to Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith, and they were increasing in number daily. Now pay attention to this next direction. Continue, if you can, to kind of look at your map in the back of your book, and you'll see the areas that Paul is going into. He is west of the Galatian area, He's in the area of like Ephesus, modern Turkey, along that coastland. Now he is moving, hopefully, eastward. He wants to go on eastward. When they had come to Mysia, find Mysia on your map, they were trying to go into Bithynia. That would have moved them eastwardly. And the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Isn't that fascinating? Here was Paul, now with Timothy. He's got Silas with him. And they're wanting to go eastwardly into Bithynia in order to continue preaching the gospel. Christ does not let them do that because even the direction in which the gospel goes is up to Jesus, who is busy building his church according to his own plan. Verse 8 tells us, and passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia 
and help us. That would take Paul and his companions into Europe. That would take them westwardly. That would take them across the Aegean Sea. That would take them into areas they had not been to yet. So when Paul started his missionary journey, his intention was to go visit the churches that had already been planted. God had other plans and sends him toward Macedonia, gives him a vision of a man in the night appealing to him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia. That is the foundation of the Philippian letter that we still have in our New Testament. This is the first time that Paul is now visiting Philippi, a leading city there in Macedonia, which is a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and we began speaking to the women who had assembled there. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things that were spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Okay, so here's what we know so far. Paul has arrived in Philippi. He's there for a little while. He goes to a riverside for a place of prayer. And there is a woman who just happens to overhear him. Wasn't that lucky? And then we're told specifically by Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, we're told specifically that God opened her heart so that she could hear and understand the things that Paul was teaching. Again, over and over again, we see the consistent theology of how it is that people understand God, how people are saved. It is always God who instigates it. It is never a person who by their own will or by their own flesh determines that they are going to be saved. It is always God who opens their heart and gives them the ability to hear the word of the gospel and so to be saved. And then she was baptized after that. So she's clearly a believer. Here 2,000 years later, we still know the name of Lydia. What we know about her is she's a seller of purple. But what we know for sure is she heard Paul and apparently would not have been able to understand what he was talking about had God not opened her heart to it. So let's ask the question, how is it that you understand anything about the Bible right now? It has to be the Holy Spirit. It has to be God who opened your heart, opened your mind so that you are born again, so that you are regenerated, so that you then being quickened can understand the things of God. Here, I'll ask it to you this way. Was there ever a time in your life when you did not understand the Bible or the things of God? Yes. Okay, what's the difference? The difference can't be you. You were walking around ignorant. You were walking around not understanding. You were walking around in your flesh not able to understand the things of God. The reason you understand them now is because God himself opened your heart quickened your mind so that you can understand the things of God. And this is represented in grand doctrinal theology in the Bible. We're going to see it repeated in the book of Thessalonians. We've seen it in the Galatian letter. It's certainly all over Romans and Ephesians. We see the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation, but the Bible also gives you individual examples of it. Like Lydia, And I like the fact that Luke took the time to tell us that God opened her heart. So that moved Paul from Asia into Europe to Philippi. And it's from there that we're going to read that he's going to head for Thessalonica. 
Now, the next thing that we read about in the book of Acts is how Paul and Silas then end up in prison. And then the Philippian jailer, you know that story. Look at chapter 17. Something you need to know about Thessaloniki, Thessalonica, something you need to know about it is that there are a lot of Jews. I mean, there are a lot of Jews in the area. There's a lot of Jews in the area. So much so that it is now known by the nickname of the Jerusalem of the Balkans. That's a name that has grown there in Thessalonica through the years because there's such a large Jewish population. And As is Paul's habit, when he gets to Thessalonica, he starts by going to the Jews. He starts by going to the synagogue. He starts by preaching the gospel to those people who should be most receptive to it, given that they have the prophets and they have the scripture. They have familiarity with the actions and work of God and of the prophecies of the Messiah. So these are the people who should be receptive to it, and it is their denial of it that then is going to send Paul to the Gentiles, which is why today we, the Gentile church, have an apostle to the Gentiles. I'm sure glad it worked out that way. Almost again, like God knew what he was doing. Amen. Yeah. And that was a good place for an amen. I appreciate that. Okay, so chapter 17, let's start reading at verse 1. This is after they were released from the jail in Philippi. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous... And taking along some wicked men from the Agora, from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming to the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, Paul and Timothy and his group, when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of his brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Does that sound familiar? Just like at Jesus' crucifixion, suddenly the Jews were all Roman. Suddenly they were, we have no king but Caesar, just in order to squash the Christian teaching. Same thing happened here at Thessalonica where the leading men of the city, leading Jews of the city, were suddenly claiming that there was another king, this King Jesus, and that was in opposition to Caesar. Now, why would they be that way? Well, I told you how rich the city was. I told you how well-to-do this city was. And they were probably having great success They're in their marketing, and they're in their trade, they're in their businesses, and the last thing they want is for the city to be known as anti-Caesar. It's very connected to Rome, and they don't want the Romans to come in and start shutting them down. So for sake of their own financial well-being, for the sake of their own physical well-being, they start siding with Caesar, they start siding with Rome, against their own God, against Yahweh and against his son. Contrary to the decrees of Caesar, they're saying that there is another king, Jesus. By the way, is that what they would have said? Oh, yeah, that's exactly what they would have said. They would have said exactly what Jesus said when he uh, was given a Roman coin. 
And they were asking, well, then, should we be giving money to Caesar? And he said, it's got Caesar's image on it. It's Caesar's money. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and give to God what belongs to God. He draws a distinction. Christ himself drew the distinction between the head of the state and the head of eternity. And he said, yeah, give the state their due. It's their money anyway, but give to God what belongs to God. And he ended up setting God above the state, above Caesar. So yes, Paul, in preaching the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus, would have said he is king. He's the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. And that was enough to make the Jews in Thessalonica nervous so that they would argue there can't be another king above Caesar. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they received a pledge from Jason and the others, they then released them. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So they were not in Thessalonica very long. That's the point. They were only there for a very brief period of time. And yet somehow in that period of time, managed to establish a church, starting with the believing Jews who had heard him in the synagogue and believed, and then Paul going out to the Gentiles and teaching them. So the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble-minded than those who were in Thessalonica. The Jews in Thessalonica argued with Paul. But these were more noble, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. That tells you something very important. It tells you that Paul argued from the scripture. And they were willing to check him against the scripture. And I wish there were more people who were willing to check things against the scripture. To this very day, the word Berean is used as a description of people who are willing to look at the text, to look carefully at what the Bible says, and to only hold those theological ideas that actually comport with what scripture says. People who are willing to really dig into their Bible we refer to as good Bereans. And there are lots of churches that use that name, Bereans. Well, this is where it comes from, that Paul was in Berea and they paid attention to the fact that he was preaching from the scripture. They, being Jews, had access to the scripture and they checked it to see whether the things Paul was saying were actually true. Verse 12, many of them therefore believed along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. So there again, we read that the Jews believed and Gentiles. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there likewise, agitating and stirring up the crowds just like Paul had to deal with in Galatia, just like Paul has to deal with pretty much everywhere he goes. He goes into Thessalonica after being imprisoned in Philippi and having preached the gospel. The Jews in Thessalonica were so upset to hear that Berea, again, if you look at your map in the back of your Bible, you'll see that Berea is pretty much a sister city. It's not too far from Thessalonica. And they hear Paul is down there preaching Christ. So they go down there and start stirring up people the same way that they did in Thessalonica. And then immediately the brethren move Paul again in order to protect him. Verse 14 says, and then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. And Silas and Timothy stayed there. Hold on to that. Because at the beginning of the book of 1 Thessalonians, you're going to read about Paul and Silas and Timothy. 
Paul is going to set out to see, but he's going to leave Silas and Timothy there, and you're going to find out that it is Timothy who then, watching what is happening in Thessalonica, is going to carry news back to Paul about Thessalonica, and that's what inspires the letters that we have written to Thessalonica. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they then departed. They come to Athens, where Paul is. The remainder of chapter 17 is about Paul in Athens. One of the things that we read about Paul in Athens is how heartsick he became because of the number of idols and temples to foreign gods that he saw there at Athens. It was very common for Grecian cities, especially prominent cities, to have a whole plethora of gods and idols and temples to all these foreign gods. And that was even the case in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was just riddled with idols and temples to foreign gods. And as a consequence, the people there I keep stressing, very rich, very well-to-do, have minted their own coinage, have their own assemblies, are a free city among the Romans. So they have a tremendous amount of autonomy, and they have all these different gods and temples, and they were just plain, flat, wicked. When you read the history of the people of Thessalonica, I mean, talk about Sexual promiscuity, which we're going to have to get into as we go through the book. There are historians who wrote about what went on in Thessalonica, and I'm just telling you, it ain't good. There was all kinds of false worship. There was all kinds of human fleshly activity. There was all kinds of politicking, and there was money, which meant there was always thievery, which meant there was always people getting rich on the backs of other people. There was all kinds of chicanery. Thessalonica was a tough, tough city for the gospel to get settled in. And you need to know that because when we get to the Thessalonian letter, these letters are not long, and yet Paul's going to hit on all those points. And the reason that he's hitting them is because he has seen what's going on in Thessalonica, and it's just not good. Turn to chapter 18. The rest of chapter 17 is about Paul in Athens and then Paul on Mars Hill. We have talked about that fairly extensively. So Paul went from Thessalonica down to Berea, down to Athens. Now in chapter 18, we're going to read that he's going to go into Corinth. It's from Corinth that he ends up sending Timothy back to Thessalonica and Berea in that area. While he is in Corinth, Paul works as a tent maker. You probably know that. He finds two people, Priscilla and Aquila, who are also tent makers, and he works alongside them. And then Timothy brought back the report to Paul of all the worries that were going on in Thessalonica and all the misunderstandings of Paul's theology and, importantly, his eschatology. One of the other things you're going to see in the Thessalonian letters is that clearly when Paul was there among them, he taught a lot of eschatology. He was not afraid to talk eschatology. And again, I'm going to stress, this is one of his earliest letters, if not the earliest letter, the first Thessalonians. And so that means that Paul, on his early missionary journeys, not only talked about Jesus as being Messiah and deliverer and our sin sacrifice, but also talked about the fact that he's coming back and encouraging people in the faith based on the fact that Christ was going to return. He talked eschatology and he wasn't afraid of it. Chapter 18, starting at verse 1. 
After these things, he left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla when Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. And they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath. This is just typical Pauline activity. He goes into a new city. He starts in the synagogues. He teaches the Jews because, again, the assumption is they've got the scripture to work with. They're going to be able to check it the same way that the Bereans did. They're going to be able to check what Paul is saying and see whether these things are actually so. And I think Paul continues to have this hope considering that in the book of Romans he says that he wishes that he himself could be a curse for his brethren who are Israel so that they would come to faith, so that they would understand Christ. Paul had this zeal for his fellow countrymen. He had a zeal for the Jews in each of these cities. And so, of course, he would bring the good news of Jesus to them because that's their Messiah. He would start there thinking that they would be most open, most receptive to it. Hey, you all are waiting for your Messiah. Guess what? I found him. I'm telling you who he is. He found me. He sent me here to come and tell you about this. And yet, time and time again, what we see is that the Jews reject it. And don't just reject it out of hand. Reject it and reject Paul and want to stop and kill the people who are saying it. Because, again, understand the politics and the religion of that moment. If what Paul is saying is true, and then Jesus is who he said he was, then the Jews have to give up everything that they have believed, everything they have been studying, everything they've been practicing for the last 1,400 years. And the leaders among the Jews are about to be completely undermined. They're going to lose their power. They're going to lose their authority over other people. Instead, they would rather silence that thing about Christianity. They would rather keep peace with the Roman world, considering that they're living in the heart of the Roman world. They would rather continue in their trade, continue making money and doing well. Just don't rock the boat. And these people, who the Jews said have upset the world, they have turned the whole world upside down, and now they've come here so they've come here with the intention of turning our world upside down. Well, no, we're not going to let you do that. And so they would fight back against Paul and Timothy and Silas and try to silence the word of Christ because they just were going to lose way too much if what Paul was saying was actually true. They were going to have to give up things. They were going to have to sacrifice. They were going to have to admit that Jesus, being the Messiah, is the fulfillment of their scripture, and therefore, that old law, as Paul keeps saying, that old covenant is done away with in favor of the New Testament in which there's neither Jew nor Greek, free nor bond, male or female. Well, that doesn't fit the Jewish mindset. So you can see why these people resisted as fiercely as they did. Verse 4, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So this chapter begins by saying Paul made his living there in Corinth as a tent maker but then when you see Silas and Timothy come to Macedonia, then Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. That's all he did. He wasn't worrying about the tent making because he was receiving support, as we already saw in the book of Galatians. He was receiving support from Philippi and from those in Macedonia. So he was solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garment and he said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. 
I am clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. And he still is to this day. We're still reading about him. He is still the apostle to the Gentiles. This is all part of, again, God's divine plan. The reason that he separated Paul and Barnabas was all part of his divine plan. The fact that Paul would get into a city and settle for a little while and then be driven out to another city so that the word of God in Christ would keep traveling, keep moving, keep being heard. The fact that he would go into major cities like Athens, like Thessalonica, and establish churches there. This is all part of God's sovereign plan to get the gospel of Jesus Christ moving through the known world. And having planted some churches in Asia, when Paul attempted to stay there and head east, Jesus wouldn't let him. Sent him west. Sent him toward Europe. And so you see the hand of God through all of this. You see Paul being persecuted and driven out and traveling, but you also see the hand of God spreading the gospel everywhere that Paul goes, even to the point where the Jews resist and blaspheme the message so that Paul would shake out his garments and say to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean of this. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there. And he went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, a God-fearer, a Gentile. You can tell by the name Titius Justus, I mean, a very Roman-sounding name. And his house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians when they had heard and were believing, they were being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. He was in Thessalonica a matter of weeks. He was in Berea a matter of weeks. He was in Athens a matter of weeks. He gets to Corinth and God says, you can settle here now. I have a lot of people here. I love that language again. That's the language of sovereign election. He says, I have many people here. So you're not going to be harmed. How could God say to him confidently, you're not going to be harmed here? Because God knew he was going to protect him. And he said, don't be afraid. Get out there and preach my gospel because I have many people here. That is one of the, if you'll excuse me and, and give me a personal moment here, that, that is one of the verses that really inspired me in the early days to not be afraid to talk about God's sovereign grace through election. Because in the days when Tom and I were in a very Arminian church out in Los Angeles, I was convinced that it was all up to me. And I had to talk people into stuff. And if someone was going to get saved, I had to get them to make a profession, make a decision, make a choice. And whatever method I had to use was fair game. I didn't care if I had to use puppets and rock bands and stick and smoke machines and whatever you got to use to get somebody to make a profession, if their eternal well-being is hanging on that profession, then whatever you got to do, do it. Just get them to say the words, and then they'll be okay forever. So I thought it was all up to me. And what a happy day when that burden was taken off my shoulders. And I came to realize that it was really genuinely up to God. And when I would read things like, God opened Lydia's heart so that she could understand the things that Paul was teaching. Or when I read that God would say, stay here and preach the gospel boldly because I have many people here. That is so reassuring. That is why I preach the gospel and have for all these years because I know God has his people and he's going to call his people and those people are going to hear it. Because they're his people. And notice that the people in Corinth that God said, I have many people here, 
weren't believers yet. And yet they were gods. Because he knew that when the gospel got to them, they were going to hear it. He was going to open their hearts and minds. They were going to understand it. They were going to come to Christ. God knew that because he's, what's that word? Sovereign. He is. Because he's in charge of building his church. And you can't read anywhere about the foundation of the church or how people get saved or the foundational doctrines of Christianity. You can't read any of that without seeing the constant proclamation that salvation, regeneration, being born again, having your eyes and heart open so that you can understand the things of God. That is always God's doing every single time. There's no verses anywhere in the New Testament that tell you that your salvation is up to your decision. And there I was out there trying to get people to decide, trying to get people to choose. Just do it. Just say the words so I can go have a sandwich. Just please let me off the hook. Oh, it was such a happy day when I found verses like this. Do not be afraid any longer. But go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no man will attack you or harm you. For I have many people in this city. And that's why Paul settled there. Not for a week, not for a month, but for a whole year and a half. And it's while he was in Corinth, when he had heard from Timothy and from Silas, that's when he sat down and wrote the letter that we know of as 1 Thessalonians. Got it? Got it. Understand the background now to it? Yep. Well, then turn to 1 Thessalonians. This first letter is very warm. Paul loves these people, compliments these people. He's encouraging them in the faith. He's repeating some of the things that he has taught while he was there. But again, remember, he was there a really short time. And so because he was there just a short time, they still had questions. They still had concerns. There were still worries and problems. Plus, once he was gone, the Jews were undermining him like crazy the same way that they did in Galatia, the same way they chased him down in Berea. And so Paul has to defend himself but this first letter is also very genial. It's very friendly. It's very loving. It's very kind. The second letter is much more corrective. It's more instructive. It's telling them the things they got wrong because apparently Timothy and or Silas took this first letter back to Thessalonica. And once they had read it, over the course of time, other stuff showed up, and they said, yeah, but what about this? And so then Paul had to write another letter to the Thessalonians. But this first one, boy, you can hear Paul's heart. Paul and Silvanus, that's the NASB translation. Silvanus, by the way, is a Roman deity. He was the guardian of the woods and of the uncultivated lands. And so it's a fairly common, well-known Roman name. Silas was his Jewish name. And then Silvanus was his Roman name. The same way as Saul was the Jewish name, Paul was the more Greek-Roman name. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. I said last week in my introduction to the book that we're not looking at right now, but I said in that introduction that Paul always gets those two words in that order, grace and peace. He never says peace and grace because you don't have any peace with God if you don't have grace from God. First, you have to have the grace of God in order for the againstness between you and God to cease. And so he always says, grace to you and peace. But notice also what Paul did here. 
There is a church. There is an ecclesia. There is a gathering of believers there in Thessalonica, the church of the Thessalonians. But how is it that that church stands, considering that Paul was only there a short time, that Timothy and Silas went back and reassured them to some degree and taught them? But how is it ultimately that that church exists? Paul does not say that church exists because Timothy did a good job. Or you really paid attention when I was there talking to you. Notice the church of the Thessalonians is in God the Father. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, a real church, a true church, I will build my ecclesia and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. A true, genuine church is one that God plants and one that Jesus sustains. And if you don't have God and Christ in your church, it's going to collapse or it's going to become a social club. And we've certainly seen lots of those. It's going to be a substitute entertainment or just another YMCA. Don't do the letters. No sooner does Paul say, hi, it's me, it's Paul, Timothy's here, Sylvanus is here. I'm writing to the church at Thessalonica, the church that is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. No sooner does he go with his common greeting, grace and peace to you, the very next thing he says is so deeply theological. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. He does not say, I thank you for supporting the cause. He does not say, Thank you for taking care of Timothy and Silas in my absence. He does not say thank you for the gifts to keep the story. He says, I thank God always for all of you. This is consistently Pauline language, especially in these early letters, that it is always the result of God and God's choosing and God's election that produces Christian believing people here do me a favor go to the second Thessalonians 2:13 that's what I'm looking for second Thessalonians 2:13 Paul is going to spell this out just as plainly and clearly as possible now I believe in sovereign election I am convinced that's what the Bible teaches and it's the only thing the Bible teaches where salvation is concerned but all too often when you talk about election when you talk about God's electing grace all too often people will try to undermine that by saying well yes the word election is in the Bible but it is God choosing and electing people for certain tasks or to accomplish certain things but it's never God choosing for eternal salvation. That's the typical argument. Listen to what Paul writes to the Thessalonians here. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we should always give thanks to God for you. It's the same way he started his first letter. I give thanks to God always for you all. And we should do that. We should always give thanks to God for you. I'm glad you're here this morning. Otherwise, I'd be talking to an empty room. But I don't ultimately thank you for being here. I thank God that after all these years, people still show up. And Paul says that's the way it should be. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. Pay attention to these words. Because God has chosen You, from the beginning, for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. Why does Paul give thanks to God for the church at Thessalonica? Because it is God who chose them, who elected them. And when did he do that? Was it right after they made a decision? No. Right after they made a choice? No. Right after they decided of their own free will that they were going to be Christian people? Is that when God chose them? No. He chose you from the beginning for salvation. From the beginning. In other words, when God went to work, he had a plan. He knew what he was doing. 
The same way that you don't build a building without a blueprint, you start by knowing what you're going to need to accomplish the building of the building. God did not start building everything without a plan, without a blueprint. He knew what he was doing. And from the beginning, he guaranteed that his son was going to get all the glory and that there were going to be people who, by his grace, were going to worship, celebrate, praise his son for all of eternity. And the way he was going to accomplish that was taking people who didn't deserve it, who couldn't deserve it, and by grace, bringing them to himself and to his son, to his own glory, to the glory of his own grace, by his own will and his own decision. And so he chose certain people from the beginning for salvation. How plain is that? Okay, so biblically speaking, what does the Bible say about how people get saved? That kind of ends the argument. People get saved because God regenerates them, because God puts his spirit in them, and he does that because he chose them. And when did he choose them? When did he elect them? Well, according to this, at the beginning, according to the book of Revelation, before the foundation of the world. So the language is consistent all the way through. And by the way, Paul writes that same language to the Ephesians and to the Romans, it's consistent Pauline theology that people are saved by the grace of God who chooses from the beginning. Back to 1 Thessalonians 1. Can you see now, with that in Paul's head, with Paul already knowing that that's how it is that this church in Thessalonica even exists, can you see why he would say, we give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers. Of course he'd thank God. It's God's enterprise. It's God's doing. We are constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, by God, his choice of you. There it is again. It's unavoidable. Paul can't put a pen to paper without saying it. And he just keeps saying it. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. That's where we will start next week. We will start picking apart all of that language. We bear in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, the steadfastness of your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. What was their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, as you go through these letters, you'll find that it's the blessed hope, that it's the hope of the return of Christ. And they were steadfast in looking forward to the return of Christ. And meanwhile, they labored to be loving, to be kind, to be generous, to be sacrificial to each other as they're waiting for the return of Christ. And that is descriptive of what all Christianity ought to be. And so I hope that by the time we get through these two letters, we'll have a greater, fuller understanding of what it means to be Christian. You got it? So, what am I going to do about last week's message? <laughs> hmm. There is a, a new page on the archive called Thessalonians Revisited. And the first message in Thessalonians Revisited is an introduction to the book of Colossians <laughs> so that everybody knows what I'm referring to this morning in saying that I was wrong in starting there. But when I got done last week, so many people said to me, oh, that was really good that I thought, well, I have to put it somewhere. So there's an introduction to Colossians and then an introduction to 1 Thessalonians. And at some point in life, I'm going to finish introducing 
and actually get to the text of 1 Thessalonians. Hopefully that will be next week. We appreciate you listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.